0: next chapter podcasts
1: hello everyone welcome to another exciting episode of how I got greenlit I'm your co-host Ryan Gibson along with me normally is Alex Collegian he's out on assignment this week today's conversation is with Z Chun executive producer producer and director has a new show coming out called gremlin secret of the mogwai enjoy the conversation thanks for joining us hi welcome to how i
2: got greenlit i'm alex collegian
1: i'm ryan gibson
2: and we're here today with zee chun zee is a writer director pro- and stop me if i'm wrong writer director producer visual artist novelist graphic novelist i saw an editor too. editor yeah uh born in chicago which should be first in my in my estimation. absolutely
1: midwest boy you like that
2: <laughs> executive producer holy shit. creator showrunner have we missed anything tell me you act in your stuff and then we can make fun of you
1: <laughs> do you put yourself in at i least think there's a little saved. over
3: some of that stuff is overlapping <laughs> oh
1: stop overlapping. it
2: yeah tell it to your checkbook okay those are line <laughs> items <laughs> No, but seriously, fun. Really, I mean, I can't wait to talk about you because you have such a fun, interesting journey, and I and we all have, and everybody seems to. And I'm wondering if you meant to, or it just happened, and like where it all sits with you. I mean, you've done some really incredible stuff. A huge fan of uh, your show Gotham. I'd say that's probably what most people know in terms of TV stuff. Um, but uh, you're a you're a you know, respected indie filmmaker. I mean, Children of Invention got a huge praise uh from many, many, many film festivals, premiered at Sundance, won Newport. Um, and then you went on to do a lot more indie stuff, but also mainstream stuff. You're you're about to come out with uh the Gremlins uh TV show on HBO Max and By the, uh,
1: by the way, a title close to uh Alex and oh, we, heart, we
2: love it. It's brought it's come up like Five times, six in five times. I think it's just, episodes. it's people, people of a certain age. It's become like a genetic to, <laughs> to, to us. Um, But and and then I I can't wait to hear more about uh I'm a Virgo. Uh, oh yeah, newest thing.
1: Yeah. Z, uh usually you know we start off you know with all these accolades. I don't even know where to start. I'm in such a whirlwind. But how you know how did you did you have a love for this stuff early on in life? Is this oh. You know, one of the things I
3: wanted to say was um, I was really excited to be on this podcast because uh, Project Greenlight was really meaningful to me um, when I was coming up. It was, um, re- it was, you know, I don't think that people who are starting in film and TV right now realize how hard it was to get information back in the day. Um, I remember just like, you know, reading like Filmmaker Magazine, Movie Maker Magazine, anything that I could get my hands on about production and Project Greenlight was such uh, an incredible learning tool. I mean, I had it recorded on VHS. I would rewatch episodes over and over again. And nice. I think you know it's 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 really interesting that people have so much access to information. Even you know, how does what does a DP do? You know, what does uh, what does uh, what are some ways that things can go wrong on set? And um, when I was starting out, you know, the, that, that was one of the first shows I felt like I really got a peek at what production would, would
1: uh, would look like eventually for me. Oh God, his ego. Careful, everybody. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: Alex, are you okay? Thank you. you know, I'm, I'm
2: touched actually. Uh, Thank you for saying that. That's really, um,
1: it was a good show. It was a good show.
2: Um, was
1: Coming, oh, yeah, we're it gonna is. Be,
2: we're gonna be, uh, we're gonna be brothers, HBO Max brothers soon, Z. Nice. Uh, the nice. show's coming back. I've been told. So with Issa it, Ray producing. So anyway, thank you for saying that. It was very nice. But th- th- today is not about me. It's about you. However, um, I will ask my attorneys to invoice you on those bootleg uh, VHS.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think that was legal back then. Uh, for both uh, personal use personally just yes. to
2: tell you how old i am when um i was impressed when,
1: that he said b- b- recorded to vhs i was oh yeah was stoked about that yeah
2: fuck yeah um i it's, can i have them because i you still have those Z? god dude i probably do actually do, do you keep your media do you guys keep your media like this is a film nerd question do you keep your media do you have a box of audio tapes a box of vhs a box of cyclist drives a box of site cy- cds do you keep keep your media
3: nowadays i would rather purchase a movie for 1999 on amazon than bend over and grab a dvd and put it into Of the, the same, same
2: thing DVD that you own same i've same done same that too <laughs>
3: that's like, what oh, they hope all you all do the room. So you're, you're like spin like,
2: up like, a disc what <laughs> <am I? laughs> yeah it's funny you say that i agree i'm i am uh I am a pack rat until I'm not, and there is something very clean about accessing stuff. But it is timely because, speaking of HBO Max and our lovely corporate masters, they have decided to pull pretty well-known shows from that platform, and people are asking, well, where are they going? So, like, in the case of uh, Westworld, it's going on DVD, but in the case of, like, Raised by Wolves, it's going into the ether, so it raises an interesting question about ste- streaming is amazing, and I'm first to sing their praises and, and the access and the, like, instant at your fingertips. But it also means that they own my library. So when I want to see Escape from New York and it's not on, I got to go find my CD sleeves, you know? yeah. Anyway, where were we?
1: So um, so you're VHSing, you're VHSing rerun. So, yes, set the,
2: the scene. Are you in high school? Like what are you are you in the hinterlands? You, you grew up in uh, the the East Coast, yes? Yes,
3: yeah, so I was I was born in Chicago. Uh, my parents were students at uh, Illinois Institute of Technology and nice. we you know, I think I was born kind of like in graduate student housing and uh, after my sister was born, we moved to someplace else in Illinois. And then we moved to Massachusetts. Um, that's where I grew up is in Massachusetts um, outside of Boston. This place called Randolph uh, mass shout out to Randolph mass. Um,
2: yeah. Yes. Of all time. <laughs> um, so you went to Milton Academy. That's right.
3: And um, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a comic book artist and nice. uh, that's, Kind of how I started writing was I, I want to be an artist and I would draw these comic pages. And then I started, you know, when I was reading comics, I was like, oh, wow, like, uh, I guess someone's got to write all these words that are going to be in these balloons. And so that's how I started writing. And at a certain point in high school, I started getting really interested in movies, which I'll talk a little bit more about um, when we talk about Chunking Express. But my high school had a really great A V club. Um, and the A V club had cameras that you could borrow. And they had like a tape-to-tape, again, dating myself, like a super VHS to super VHS editing bay. And um that's kind of how I learned to make movies. That's and advanced you look at, for a
1: high school, buddy.
3: Yeah, it was it was great. And it was it was something where, you know, when I was drawing comics, you know, when you draw comics, you're like, Every page, you have to draw everything in it. And then there was something really freeing about it. you just pick up the camera and you can just film everything. And so I spent like four years in high school, like with a camera basically attached to me, like shooting everything. And it was a great education. Um They really allowed me to do some independent studies. I've created my own uh film program in the last couple of years. I made um two hour-long movies, a bunch of shorts and a feature in high school, roped together all my friends. And, um, you know, you had kind of mentioned there's a lot of like, there's a lot of weird stuff on my IMDb. Like I've done a lot of different, um, uh, parts of filmmaking. And I am really thankful that I did that because, you know, having, having, um, having held a boom, having, you know, uh, lit a scene before, uh, I've, i At least I know what all those jobs are, and so when, when I, when I step foot on a professional set for the first time, I, 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 at least had some context to what everybody was doing.
2: That's huge. That is huge. We, we talk about that a lot. How to be a good leader you have to know what you're asking these people to do and what a reasonable expectation is to do. And maybe if they're, you know, if you're on an indie set and they're younger, it's their first time, second time, they're working for cheap. You can give instruction about tricks you learned and pass on the knowledge uh to them or get great old hands and they teach you stuff you know but knowing the jobs on the set so you know how to play it's almost like the conductor has to have a working knowledge of all the instruments so they know what to get out of the group right so you had the hunger you were making short films you were recruiting your friends Was there a singular person, teacher, parent, relative, or even just a film itself that was like that that shifted you from comic books into like I see the light? Yeah, that's what I want to
1: know. Like, what were the early loves? Because I mean, you're doing you know the Gremlins. uh, anim- is it, it's animated, right? Is it's you- animated. Yeah. So you're doing the gremlins thing. So were there, uh, was there a time during that time period? Again, like Alex said, were there people or, or films or movies that you watched that you were like, Oh man, uh, this is, I want, yeah. To
3: know. You know, um, my, my family is, is, um, I, I was raised by a single mom. Um, and, um, me and, uh, her and my sister spent a lot of time together when we were growing up. You know, she was always working, but uh, she had a really interesting upbringing, which was she was an a orphan uh, who was, you know, kind of traded hands a bunch of times, went to a bunch of different families, and kind of grew up without a family. And so when she had me and my my sister um it kind of felt like you know looking back on it I, I can kind of see that that was the first time that she really had a a family to call her own and we had a very um and and I, this is a very roundabout way of answering your question but um we kind of had an atypical upbringing compared to other kind of more you know the 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 type of upbringing that a lot of asian american kids talk about which is more kind of like um elusive parents, uh, parents that didn't really um, show affection. My mom was always very affectionate to us. And she also uh, did something that was very different than the kids around me. I think uh, the other Asian-American kids around me, a lot of their parents had a very clear idea of what was a a profession that you could get into um, and what success looked like. And for my mom, she was always very encouraging of me and my sister. We're both in the arts. Um, and we both showed interest in the arts early, and she she basically just said, "You can do anything you guys want to do, and I'll support you, but you have to try to be the best at it." And I remember one day when I was starting out, um, not starting out, it was in, in seventh grade. I, I was starting to get interested in comic books, and I told her that I thought I wanted to be a comic book artist. And you know, she didn't really say anything. Um, she was like, "Okay." And then the week went by and then this weekend, Saturday morning, um, she woke me up and she was like, um, look at this. And she had cut out the yellow pages uh, that had a listing of all the comic book shops in the Boston area. And she just took me to every comic book shop um, over the course of a whole day. Oh my. And she knew God. that I was interested in it. And she was just very encouraging of uh, that excitement. And She was also a big lover of movies. Um, One of the things I think is so touching about her story is when she was a kid, you know, she never really had parents. And she said that the only time she ever felt the embrace of an adult was when they would go to the movies in Singapore and you didn't have to pay for a kid's ticket as long as they sat in your lap. And so that's the only time she ever felt that an adult would like hold her is in a movie theater um, and I thought that that was really interesting because when we were growing up, she always, her, her biggest joy was bringing us to the movies. And I re- remember even one spring break, you know, kids were going, going skiing or whatever. And she was like, uh, you guys, want <laughs> you guys want to rent like three or four movies a day and just watch those movies all day. And so we, we, we stayed in for the whole spring break. We watched like, you know, 30 movies. And it was awesome as a kid to just be able to do that. And every day you go to Blockbuster or Hollywood video in the morning, you're like, she's like, what movies do you want to watch? And that was like a real film education in terms of, you know, and there were all movies that kids liked, you know, but I, I I gained this enjoyment of of, of movies from that time. And I think that that kind of informed why I wanted to make movies when I started, um, when I kind of uh when I, when I started high school, basically, I, I made that transition from wanting to be a comic book artist to wanting to become an independent filmmaker.
1: That's such a cool story. Uh, really? Yeah. Uh,
2: it, how has your, um, your family embraced your success now? Are they very much take ownership?
1: Is your mom like, <laughs> I said, be the best? I said, be the best. <laughs> you know, who you turned doing? them on to this?
3: It was me. I mean, I do, I feel very lucky that I got, we, you know, my first, my first, my short film that got into Sundance in 07 and my first feature, uh, Children of Invention that went to Sundance in 09, were both semi-autobiographical and um, actually my short, my mom stars in the short film and she has like a little cameo in the feature. Um, But then more recently I got to write and direct an episode of Little America uh, for Apple TV that was really based on. Of my mom's life and also uh, a story that happened to us when we were teenagers. Um, and this kind of dovetail. The, the, so basically, when, when we were kids, um, we didn't have money to go on vacation. So my mom, uh, being very, very resourceful, every year, she would bring us to the vacation expo in Boston at the Bayside Expo Center, where you basically walk around, and you see all the vacations that you could go on if you could pay for them. And the other thing about her, is she gets everywhere really early. And so one, one weekend, I was 16, my sister was 12. Uh, she woke up us up really early on a Saturday. She was like, we're going to the vacation expo. I, like, oh, I really don't want to go. It's still dark out. And she drove us there. And we were so early that the only people there were vendors. And then there was a freak Nor'easter. So um, everything was snowed out. But because we were there, we were like the only like... Um, you know, uh, people who had paid to like get into it. Everybody else was just a vendor with their booth set up. And my mom was like, um, let's enter all the raffles.
1: And, <laughs>
3: <laughs> and we won a ski vacation, a timeshare, and a luxury cruise. And two of those things were <laughs> scams, but the luxury <laughs> cruise was real. Like, and it was it was so funny. It was me, my mom, and my sister, and we had one like a romantic getaway for two. Luckily, our car had been T-boned like a month before, and we had the insurance money. We paid for my sister's ticket. That's a,
1: that's a rare. That's a rare sentence that you, that you rarely <laughs> luckily, hear. Luckily, we got. Luckily, we had gotten in a horrible
3: car accident. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to laugh. No, no, it's funny. It's like it, it is, is.
1: It is funny. It is funny. Um,
3: and then we got one on this luxury cruise. And so the story is about uh, the, the episode of Little America, which is um, streaming on Apple TV plus is about that time in our lives um, and also has flashbacks to my mom's childhood. Um, it's kind of about, you know, she's watching her hit, her kids grow up. Um, and it's also about like letting go and, you know, what happens when your kids are becoming more independent the winner of the grand prize Alaskan cruise is I Wang. Yes. About We sunscreen. Yeah, the skin
2: cancer. already have sunscreen
3: on. But I felt really lucky that we got to make that episode, and um, Angela Lin, who played my mom, got to hang out with my mom a bunch and talk to her about you know what that time in our lives was like. And actually, on that cruise is where I met. Um, my co-founder in the comic book company and so within uh, my comic book company Tko studios and you know if if, if that set of events hadn't been put into it, it, if, if that set of events hadn't happened, you know i wouldn't I wouldn't have started this comic book company it's a crazy
1: that's a crazy, that's a crazy uh, set set of coinc- coincidences that built yeah. your life like Alex and I talk about it all the time how the best scripts in life or the best scripts that you read have so much truth and, and, or, or occurred in your life, like writing what, write what, you know, it all goes back to that. So I think that's really cool.
3: Shooting on a cruise is crazy. We shot on an active cruise and it was like 700 people who just signed waivers that they're okay being in the background. And it was four days of running around um, with, our cast and crew on a live cruise ship where, um, you know, starting from 10 AM people are getting like progressively drunker <laughs> until 4 PM. Everyone's passes out for two hours and then they come back out for dinner and then it's wild. Like siesta. it's also hallucinatory. I mean, we, we did, it was a two day cruise to the Bahamas and we did it twice just so we were, could shoot for four days. And I was on the cruise for so long, I knew what song was coming up next on the playlist.
1: Oh, wait, it's on loop?
3: That music is pre
1: programmed? (laughs) It was on loop. Oh, my God. I did not know that. Did people in the background start like just staring straight down the barrel of the lens? Like, did you get. 100%. 100%. (laughs) that's the
2: dark side of like, because so for the indie filmmakers out there, like you don't realize how expensive crowds are. Like people cost money and you get extras. You're like, Oh, extras, whatever they're free. No, they're not free. They cost a lot of money because they actually know what they're doing. And they take instruction when you, when you, when you do what Z did and what others and we, my, Ryan and I have done, is you're like, look, there's a crowd of people. Just, you know, get waivers. That'll be like instant, like, you know, uh, uh, Resources and scale to our film, and it's like yes, but it comes at a cost
1: because they price. don't know
2: what they're doing. They make noise. They look at the camera and they add, address you directly. That yeah, add, add alcohol.
1: Add alcohol that. Plus mix. alcohol.
2: Plus Ooh. like closed environment. Plus you know all the inherent risk of an actual boat at sea, and it's just yeah, it's a lot.
3: I mean, it was <laughs> all you can drink cruise. I mean, there were like, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. I remember asking these two ladies what they were drinking, and they were like oh you get you gotta get this this is the 24 ounce long island iced tea which if you've ever made a long island iced tea before uh it's like 80 booze and then 20 sugar i mean it was i watched them make it it, t- it took the guy like you know two minutes because he was just pouring
1: was it <laughs> was it served in like a, a tube like a large uh you know um uh, an IV bag. Yeah, it's oh, it it, was served it was, in a bag.
3: <laughs> it was the best. It, it was served in a like a margarita glass, like an oversized margarita uh, glass. A, yes, had a, a lid, bowl. like a lid on it, because they're like, we don't trust that not gonna yeah, you're not going to spill. Yeah,
1: you're going to make a mess if you don't early. You will by the end of this drink. You're going to get the seagulls drunk. <laughs> Just don't spill <laughs> one way or the other. So, so you you
2: you go to the storied academy, which um, apparently fueled some of your writing. Right, you wrote a spec about going to a, a private academy, sort of that world that you grew up in.
3: Probably, I've written a lot of specs. <laughs> I'm sure I did at some point.
2: And um, so, and that led you to Columbia. Were you? Uh, did you look at other film schools? Did you? What? Why did you pick Columbia?
3: Um, I think I wanted to be in New York and mm-hmm. um, you know, that's where all my filmmaking heroes were. And I had visited New York a couple times. I actually um, in high school, I took the bus up to go watch Happy Together, um, another Wong Kar Wai movie because um, you know, they just weren't showing. In, it wasn't showing in Boston. And I was just amazed by the f- film culture in New York. Um, it felt when I visited that they there are like art house movies on movie theaters on every corner. And um yeah, I just, I just felt like New York, it was one of those things where I had just all through high school, read about New York filmmakers. So I was like, okay, well, if you want to be a filmmaker, you have to move to New York. It just seemed, I, I, I just thought that was what you had to do.
2: Nice. Yeah, of course. Um I'm a NYU guy, so I get it. And you were undergrad grad?
3: I was undergrad. Um, and at Columbia, there's not really a film production undergrad program. It's more mm. film studies. And so it was a lot of, uh, reading books and watching movies and writing papers. Um, I'll be honest. I think I probably messed up the choices going to college. Um, I think I probably should have been someplace else that was more production oriented. Um, I still made a couple features and a bunch of shorts when I was in college. Um, But there wasn't really the infrastructure for it um, at the school. It was really you had to do it on your own. And I don't know. I think it was because I I, I was the first time living away from home. I was kind of, you know, I felt pretty lonely. Um, The best thing about um, going to Columbia to me was... um, so you could schedule your classes in a certain way where you only had to go to school three days a week and you had four days off. And then I would use that time to like watch movies or write or make movies. And, um, one of the things about, you know, cause my mom was a single mom, you know, she was always working, um, you know, a few times a week, she would like drop us off at Barnes and Nobles for a couple hours while she ran errands or she did work. And so I had read, I would say like two thirds of the books that Um, ended up that you were
2: you were expected to read yeah
3: so I had a lot of free time and um, I there was a place called the movie place on 103rd street and I shouted out because uh, it closed um, I think like 10 years ago but it was this incredible movie rental place it was 250 per rental but every time you rented a movie you got one free and so it was like really inexpensive and so I would always rent I, you know, I rent two movies a day and I would watch them from midnight to four in the morning. And that was an incredible film education. And it's how I encountered a lot of movies that I, I, you know, I wouldn't have gotten to watch if I had just only had a blockbuster near my house.
2: <laughs> nice. And, and, uh, did the seeds of your first film start there? Were you making, were you writing, were you, uh, how did, Take us from Columbia film student to debuting at Sundance. Like what was well, that post-college?
3: Yeah. Um, you know, so I'm pretty vocal online on, on what's left of Twitter. Um, it's, <laughs> you know, I talk a lot. You know, I really care about creators because I remember the, those years very vividly of wanting to do something, feeling like I – had a story to tell and wanting to be recognized for it and just things not happening at all. And it was a long time, you know, from the time I started making movies, you know, I was 15 years old. And so it was, you know, a decade of really working hard. I mean, I, during that time I was making like a, I was in high school and college and making like a feature or a few shorts every year. Um, and none of them ever, did anything for me. I mean, they, they never like got any awards. They never got to any film festivals. And I, I talk a lot to younger creators about, um, um, rejection because mm-hmm. those were really the years of rejection. And when I graduated from college, I made a, um, schedule for myself, which was to make a no budget short film every six months and write a feature film every nine months. And, Hmm. Um, I was painting portraits at the time. Um, um, I, I I I I always drew, and um, in college I was invited to be part of like a group art show, and I did a bunch of portraits of of my friends and some professors, and then some of them sold, and then people saw them, and so I was making like pretty good money as like a 22 year old painting portraits for people. Um, and then I was also authoring DVDs, talking about like, um, <laughs> and, like shooting an event and then like going to DVD Studio Pro and like making the flow charts and stuff. Um, anyway, so while I was doing that, um,
2: you know. I'm, yeah, but that's what you do after film school. You use your skills. You, yeah. you make a buck. You Yeah. yeah. Um,
3: and then I made um,
2: – And were you good about your your, your pre the, the the schedule that you made? Were you, yeah. were you on it?
3: You know, that yeah. first three and a half, four years, I made 12 short films. And I guess I wrote three features. And, you know, the thing about the rejection part of it was, you know, I was making these movies on the weekends, roping my friends into it. Each one of those, you know how it is. It's not easy to make a short film um, when no one's getting paid. And um, I made 12 of them. And eleven eleven of them never got into a single film festival. And this was at the time when um rejections were mailed. And I vividly yeah. remember coming back to my mailbox and sometimes there'd be like two or three rejection letters <laughs> at the on top time. of each other. And every night I would wake up in the middle of the night and think, like, am I doing something wrong? Am I doing something? Am I am I Am I not good enough to do this? Um, And, you know, the shorts were all really different. Um, The one thing that I think united a lot of them was I felt like I was trying to do what I thought other people wanted me to do or what like a short film was supposed to do. And it was really my 12th short film that was, um, was a short called Window Breaker. I think I burnt through favors from friends because this was the smallest crew of anything that I would worked on, and you know I would worked with small crews. It was a uh, so Window Breaker was a short film that um, was semi-autobiographical about um, some like a string of break-ins in a small neighborhood and um, the paranoia that ensues. It's a mixed race neighborhood um, uh, based on the neighborhood I grew up in, Randolph. Um, I wrote a three-page outline uh I was like i i i'm I'm just gonna shoot this and improv everything um shot it in my childhood home. My mom is in it uh we cast some kids from the neighborhood um I held the camera. My producer who acted in the movie was holding the boom when he wasn't in the shot. He was sometimes in the scene, but he was just like put you know put like a soccer ball or something as an eyeline for the other actor and they held the boom. <laughs> the crew was my then girlfriend, now wife's little sister and her best friend who were, who were in high school at the time. And then I rented the lighting kit from the same lighting, uh, rental place that I rented lights from in high school. The lighting kit was $70 Mm -hmm. for the weekend. And we shot it on mini DV for $600. Uh, and it got into Sundance. Um, but it was, um, it was like, it was the first time where I was like, I want to just try to make a movie feeling confident that I should just do something that felt right as opposed to what other people wanted. Um, And um,
2: so the first time you believed in yourself is when it happened.
3: I don't, I think it was more the first time that I let go of the expectation that
1: Mm. something
3: had to be a certain way for people to care about it because,
1: mm-hmm.
3: you know, I think I was like, you know, I shot one of the shorts, like I was part of a theater company. We raised this money and we did like, we shot it on 30. It was like really short. It was like four, four minutes long, like shot it on 35 millimeter for like, I don't know why we did this. Um, But it was like what I thought like a glossy short was supposed to be, you know? Um, Maybe it would be like good for like, you know, like a calling card. That was, that was the word that we kept on hearing, like calling card. You need a calling
2: card. calling card, yes. A calling
3: card short film. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and, well,
2: what else can it be? It's not like yeah. there's a market to sell a short film and get your money back for whatever time and effort, right? It's just, it's a calling card. It just is. Yeah.
1: Would, would you say that 12th one, Z, was that the one that you made for yourself most of all? Not that you didn't, not that you didn't make the others for yourself, but where you just were like, without this is,
2: I want to please myself. Yeah, Yeah. I don't want. I
1: think that's the good way of
3: putting it. That the other ones I felt like could get my, I I was like, this is going to be a calling card for my career. The other one was (laughs) the twelfth one was like, I, I I want somebody to watch this and feel feel something when when we were growing (laughs) up, basically.
1: Right, right let's take a break we'll continue our conversation with Z in a moment but first I'd like to reflect back on a conversation we had with Gary Carter as he talks about creativity and finding that special project this one comes from our vault do yourself a favor, go back and listen to it enjoy it, it's a good episode Gary's fascinating we'll continue with Z in a moment but here is Gary Carter
0: certain people are just old souls Were you always like that Yes, I think so because I I'm endlessly curious and that's part of the profile of course yes. of creative in um, any, any artist, yeah. yeah. And I, and I believe that we spend a lot of time floundering around. So I can give you one of my big bugbears, right? When I when people say to me what we need to do is to improve creativity in the organization. My first question is always what is creativity? Because actually There's a lot of work, there's a whole discipline called creativity studies. But most people in Hollywood are paid very highly to, they're intelligent people, paid highly to think very superficially. So they don't actually look at what the data says about creativity. They would rather just vaguely conflate innovation with creativity when they don't really grapple with what they, they themselves mean. This was a fight that John De Mol and I used to have often. John De Mol is. Uh, so John De Mol is the founder of one of the two founders of the mighty Endemol and as it were, the man behind Big Brother and a very significant person in my career and the dominant uh, media mogul of the Netherlands and and in part of Europe. So I'm sure he'll crop up in the conversation. Probably
2: we'll, one of the heads on the reality Mount Rushmore.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And his, his, yeah, we used to have that argument all the time. He used to say things to me like, where is the next big brother? And I used to say, well, if we knew where the first big brother came from, we'd be able to go and get you another one. (laughs) Right. But because nobody stops to ask in to analyze in what circumstances big brother arose, it's futile to say, go and come back with another big brother.
3: I think one of the things that I noticed when we first got to Sundance, cause you know, there were, there were, I can't remember, maybe 60, 70 shorts. Um, so I became friends with a lot of the other shorts filmmakers. And I think that there was a the perception among a lot of them that this was it, that it was going to be coasting from, from here on out. But I think the second that I kind of landed in park city and, um, nobody really wanted to talk to me, even though I had a short Sundance, I think it became pretty clear to me that it was gonna become a lot harder. And I do remember there was, um, the conversations that I was hearing felt a little baffling from the other shorts filmmakers where I remember some kid was like, I'm not gonna do a deal with anyone unless it's a three picture deal. And I was like, <laughs> Nobody wants to talk to us, man. Like we're at a party and no one wants to talk to us. We're not getting a one picture deal. We're not even getting a zero <laughs> picture deal. Well, we are getting a zero picture deal. But, but like, that's the deal you're don't know the- what we're talking about. That
2: is man. the deal. That's the current deal on the table. Um. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it, it, you you got it. You saw it. You, you read the room. They're like, yeah, great. You got You got a ticket into the party, but now no one wants to talk to you. Yeah. Right. There's always another VIP room inside the VIP room inside the VIP room. Yeah. And ever thus, man. So um, it's really about, you know,
1: it's really about just keeping, you know, again, as something Alex and I talk about too, all the time is that you just got to keep going. You got to keep your head up and keep, you know, every, there's ebbs and flows, ups and downs, and you just have to keep your head straight and, you know, continue to do kind of like that list Z that you made early on of the, that I'm Mm going to keep doing these things no matter what. Cause that, I think in the end, you're the only one who's responsible for what happens next. Yeah. And that's a big part of it. You know, it's not like people are trying to keep you out, but especially in Sundance these days and not to, I'm not talking bad about Sundance, but it's a different culture now than it was, you know, 20 years ago, even. and. I, I, I think it can be really hard for someone.
2: Well, juxta well, hold on then, juxtapose. So that was your first Sundance experience with a short and then but then you came back and premiered your feature there. Yeah, so obviously yeah right something you derived something out of that experience or you met some people or you learned maybe more about what they were looking for on a feature side. I mean what was the what was the takeaway? Yeah. Just you gotta work harder or just well, for dumb think,
3: luck. You know, I think I wanted to make sure that if I was I think I had a good gut instinct of I think I've had a good gut instinct in my career about survival and how to change my perception of what I should expect very mm. well. and I think the second I landed in Sundance, I was like, first off, it was still a dream, you know, to be able to have my short film with Sundance. It was the thing that I had been working towards for, you know, like a decade, um, finally had my calling card. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, but when I got there, I was like, I was able to separate the feeling of accomplishment from the feeling of, okay, this is a personal accomplishment that people may not really care about, but I care about, but it's mm-hmm. still going to be very difficult. And I need to figure out based on what I'm seeing and the lack of interest, how I can make something that's undeniable. And oh, I did that basically good. by um, writing something that was a scaled up version from window breaker. But my first feature, the f- the budget was $150,000. I thought I was going to make it for $25,000. Um, I thought I was based, I mean, I did like baby kindergarten math in my head and I was like, well, uh, my twelve-minute-long short film was six hundred dollars, you know. Like I just have to multiply that by whatever, you know. And I met with a couple of producers. Actually, one of the great things about um, um, the indie film scene at the time was that you know th- there are still like a lot of support systems. Film Independent is great, um, and I did a thing called IFP, which is the Independent Film Project. There. Um, it's like a finance market, which is basically like... Yeah.
2: Is that in New York? Or yeah, or is New IFP? York. yeah, I remember IFP. Um,
3: yeah. And you basically speed date and you you have 15 long, minute long meetings with a bunch of producers. And again, like I don't think anybody was really interested in the project, but I had the feeling that instead of... Because I was watching people like really pitching hard and doing a pressure sell. I was like, I'm not going to sell anybody anything in this 15 minutes. I want to find out as much as possible about everybody I'm meeting with. And so instead of pitching, I was asking a lot of questions. And one of the people um, was this guy, Dan Kogan, um, who worked at a company called Impact Partners. And they only did documentaries. Um, and they did documentaries about social causes. And I just really liked him. Um, and I kept in contact with him. And I emailed him to ask if he had any suggestions about who could finance this script for $25,000. Because like, it's so little money. Like, Do you have anybody... And he was like, you know, this is really on the edge of what we would do. We don't do any narrative, you know, fiction projects, but let me just pitch it internally because I really like the script. And he was like, and also like, you can't make it for $25,000. That's crazy. And I was like, $30,000? Like you should make it for like, let me just look at this. <laughs> and, um, you know, we ended up, you know, he, he, he was like, they're interested, like, realistically, how much can you make this for? And I had, and I contacted this producer I had met, um, Minette Louie, I had met her. She had been a producer on Funny Ha Ha, Andrew Bajowski's first movie. I had met her at a screening and I emailed her. And I emailed a few other producers and um, most of the emails I got back were, I'll get back to you when I get back to you, or uh, not interested, or I can't make a movie for this little money. And Minette said, "Let's meet up tomorrow." And she, when we met up, she had already done a budget for it, and so she became my producer, like on the spot. And she produced my first two movies. Um, and um, you know, we gave that um, budget to um, Dan Kogan and um, this guy Trevor Sagan, I'd gone to college with, who had also started a film fund, and they split that hundred fifty thousand um, dollars, and we made we made we made a movie with it. Very cool.
1: Yeah, real cool.
2: Um, and how did that feel after all those rejection letters? Your, your your feature got into like fifty of them, and like won a bunch, and like was that a great like? Oh, I've solved the code, or yeah, or was it so far or, later that you're like, ah, or, whatever, or, or more, speci- <laughs> or more
1: specifically, would you say that was a greenlit moment for you, Z? Yeah. Uh, you-
3: I do remember that moment when they were like, well, it didn't feel real. I was well, like, yeah. that, that's no a one good sign the, that the, you're making a movie. And I, I immediately thought in my head, the hundred ways that it could fall apart um, <laughs>
1: every day, every hour. Oh, of every good. day. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but you know, what was the most satisfying? You're reminding me window breaker got rejected from 25 film festivals before wow. it got into Sundance. So we did our world premiere at the Long Island Film Expo. And then we got into um, Woodstock. And then Sundance was the third film festival that we went to. And luckily Sundance didn't have a, for shorts, they don't care if it's where you premiere. Um, And then the next year, Window Breaker got automatically, we got like email acceptances from a bunch of film festivals that I had applied to the previous year that I did not apply to the next year just saying that Window Breaker had gotten in because it um, had played at Sundance. So a bunch of the festivals that had rejected us then let us in, which I thought was very satisfying.
2: So you're you you you're drawn to... So I love your logic because I was also a failed comic book artist, which is, <laughs> wait a minute, I got to draw the same goddamn alley for Spider-Man again? I just want to draw Spider-Man, right? <laughs> so shooting is a lot easier than drawing the same alley six from six angles. But you mix it up throughout your career. You go back and forth from live action to animated, which is certainly labor intensive. In fact, you could argue more so than a comic book because of all the elements and animation and movement and the 10 out 10,000 other degrees of difficulty. Um, Do you have a preference to live action or animated now, or do you like them for depending on the project? Like, the animation imperative that you can get a bigger idea or crazier, fantastical
1: stuff. I have a follow up after this, too. I have to ask. So sorry.
3: Yeah. You know, I think for me, um, it's really project by project. I do feel very lucky that I really, I really like the, all the different parts of the process of filmmaking um, from, you know, brainstorming to writing to, production feedback notes like i really do like all the different- oh
2: you you like casting cuz you can stay on the line after we're done recording and <laughs> deal with our casting bullshit that we got to go back to after this
3: um it's funny that you mentioned the casting thing i did i made one change in casting that made me enjoy it a lot more which which is not use any sides that are from the actual project ah uh, uh, yeah to write new scenes because it used to be that um after hearing a scene written uh, you know read 20 times by different actors um you would start to i mean i would start to lose my mind um and i would never yep. be able to to look at that scene again um the same way and um when i made that change i, I actually I, I did enjoy casting a lot more
2: so you write uh, rather than say like here's a scene from Casablanca. You write uh, the char- You write other supplementary scenes with the characters uh, that you know will not be included. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nice.
3: I mean, it's like it's kind of a lot of work, but I, it's mo- it to me it's less work than. Um, being mentally destroyed after hearing a scene that you wrote, <laughs> right. You know, I actually love that. I, I, let me, I,
2: let me, let me rephrase <laughs> if the early, early stage of casting where it's more about the business side of casting, if that makes sense. The um, what is the value yeah. of the actor? Um, I love yeah. casting casting with playing with different actors, seeing different styles, Seeing physicality, like oh, I never would have thought of that choice. You know that part I love. I'm saying the business side of like monetizing the casting into well, this person's worth a million and a half, and you know what I mean yep. in the in the the making of the film space. What was your follow up question, Ryan?
1: You know, since we were talking about comic books, uh, and you know, Alex, that I've been going down a comic book <laughs> rabbit hole lately,
2: trying to yes trying
1: to rebuild my lost story.
2: Z how many comic books do you own?
1: I mean if we were to put them in
3: long boxes maybe yep I probably have like eight or nine maybe ten long boxes
2: so nice so, so I have like five so you win so um
3: okay. so I also own a comic book company and so well I said was- <laughs>
1: z just z just spiked the football he was like by the way (laughs) i also own a comic book company
3: (laughs)
2: Well, that's funny. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot of filmmakers are comic lovers, failed comic creators, or actually, you know, like working comic creators who, who continue along that line. I mean, it's a, it's a form of visual storytelling. It's, 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 there's a natural um, DNA to it. And and even in the nineties, there was that huge um, comic book frenzy that wasn't, the Like pre MCU, there was like the image stuff and yeah, just to, that, well, I mean, the comics business was going through a lot, but the, the way that it became like uh, a shorthand to set up a, a film or a TV show was just like, oh, I got a comic book or I got a, you know, graphic novel or whatever. Like it it, it started becoming more important than books and literary stuff from the 80s and 70s and before that you know are you naturally drawn to more mainstream stuff or are you more like at heart an indie person obviously you're talking about batman comics and then you got to actually work on the batman tv show and like the catwoman animated i mean you're 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 working with the characters that you grew up with like is that was that the dream
3: it's funny um you know i kind of go through cycles and and part of it is when I was starting out, I was consuming a lot of media and, you know, you start to get, sometimes you, you know, it was also, I was, I grew up watching really like mainstream movies, you know, um, things like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Star Wars, you know, all the ambulance stuff, Goonies, Gremlins, Gremlins, you know, all these movies <laughs> that were real, you know, mainstream hits. Um, and like incredibly made uh, films and then, you know, in high school, I started getting into more esoteric stuff because I was like, I want to know what's out there. I want to know things that are going to be different than what I see every day, you know, what my friends see. And so I would just get more and more esoteric in terms of my movie watching. You know, I was, I went to the theater and watched um, this movie, Satan Tango, this Bella Tarr movie. That movie is seven and a half hours long. It's in black and white. You know, you get there at 3.30 in the morning, I mean, 3.30 in the afternoon, you leave the theater at like 11 p.m. And, you know, it was one of those things where I'm really glad I did it. And I learned a lot from these, you know, from foreign movies, indie movies. And I'll speak more about that when I talk about Trunking Express. But um, it kind of goes in cycles because then at some point I was like, sometimes I'll want to do something that's more indie. You know, my first feature was very indie indie. a family drama, very slice of life. But then I also when I started going after Gremlins, um I wanted to be involved in a story that was a big kind of four quadrant co-viewing show that um you know I could watch with my
1: kids. Is uh is the new um Gremlins uh is it skewed for a younger audience or is it
2: um like the film sort of all audiences yeah or does it have that have uh, that
1: you know wink and nod like old looney tunes cartoons had which where there were subversive jokes for the adults yeah. too like you know so
3: I, so with Gremlin secrets of the mogwai um it's uh it's an animated prequel to the gremlins movies that takes place in 1920s china
1: oh super, super. and
3: it's a story nice. of how you know the old shopkeeper mr wing Mm-hmm. It's a story of how he met Gizmo when he was ten years old, and the adventures that they went on. So nice. it's been serialized. It's actually like kind of one long story um, in the first two seasons. But you know, one of the things I really wanted to do with the show was to use it as a way to not just you know um, revitalize uh, the Gremlins you know franchise, but also. Uh, introduce American audiences to uh, Eastern and specifically like Chinese uh, spirits and creatures from Chinese mythology. Um, And so every episode, you know, there's a serialized story of, you know, Sam Wing, um, this French street thief L and Gizmo as they're on this adventure to return Gizmo to his ancestral homeland. Um, But then you're also meeting a lot of uh, spirits and creatures from Chinese mythology. And one of the funniest things when I was growing up watching Gremlins was it has, um, you know, Gremlins has this crazy tone, right? It's like scary and it's weird, um, but it's also really funny. I you, <laughs> and um, that's what a lot of Chinese kind of like ghost stories are like, which is um, they're weird, they're funny, and they're really scary. Um, there's a Chinese theme park called um, Papa Villa, which we, we would go to growing up. And the exhibits would, instead of like, it's a small world, there would be an exhibit that was like, these are all the different parts of hell. And you would go in, and there'd be like, a some creature that had the body of a crab, but the head of a man, like it, it was terrifying, but it was also really funny. You know, it was like, um, so tonally I just thought that those two things would really mesh well together. Um, and, um, yeah, the, the, the idea is to have it appeal to the folks who liked, who loved the original gremlins movies, but also to open it up. So, um, people, you know, kids who have never seen it, um, uh, the original gremlins movies, um, can enjoy it
1: too. Nice, nice. I like the I like the the um, concept for the story of of the the prequel. It's it's a cool it's a cool place to go.
2: It opens it up a bit. Are, are you? Uh, did comics get you into sort of Chinese mythology or was that always a part of your family? Did you discover that like later in life? Um, cause it is a very rich untapped vein of like original, <laughs> original comic IP from, you know, 5,000 years ago. Um, it's, it's a very rich world. Is that something that's been in your family or how did it's just you something come that to you that? that?
3: Grew, you grow up with. Um, and we would watch, um, VHS tapes, not to keep on talking about VHS tapes, but um, <laughs> <Important>. <laughs> VHS tapes um, outside of Boston, there's actually a really big Chinese community. So we would have their, our own video stores where we would rent, looking back, like clearly bootlegged uh, VHS tapes. <laughs> um, but there was a TV show called Journey to the West based on um, this ancient book. And every episode uh, had some different creature from Chinese mythology. And actually, Journey to the West was the template that I used to to tell the Gremlin story.
0: What is this sound from Earth? We don't know.
1: All seer, all listener, find the source of this noise.
0: Yes, your majesty.
3: Basically, Journey to the West is, ah. it's like the Chinese version of the Odyssey or the Iliad. And it's about a monk who is um bringing sacred texts uh into india chinese monk and he has to because he can't do violence he has to recruit um a number of warriors there's like a guy there's the monkey king it's like a big bearded guy with like a rake and then there's like a a a pig man or pig god i guess um (laughs) as i butcher the book that i'm talking about (laughs) uh uh, it's okay drawing inspiration from um but that type of adventure, where you're putting together a motley crew in order to yeah
2: yeah yeah yeah, that,
3: that was really the impetus for like okay, I think I want to shape this pitch for Gremlins around um, a structure like Journey to the West because Gizmo's tiny and he can't really like he can't really fight. He can be resourceful, but he kind of has to be protected. Well, it's
2: it's interesting. You talk about pitch, so actually you you bring up a. A point of sort of specificity is that, you know, there's two kinds of way to get writing work and producing work and creative work uh, that you're actually controlling the story, which is to pitch. So Mm -hmm. one way is you create an original story. Here's Z's new idea, new spec script, or here's Z's TKO comic that he's bringing in the IP and here's how to adapt it to a show. But then there's this whole other tranche, which has become more and more pervasive day by day in modern uh, filmmaking, which is um, becoming the adapter and the guardian of beloved IP Mm -hmm. for a studio. So Gremlins is exactly that. It's well known to a certain audience. At least the name and the pop culture sort of ephemera is, is, is out there. But it's ripe for reinvention and sort of as you're doing like a prequelization. Um, take us through that uh which i'm guessing would be what's your take right they yeah. use that a lot what's your take hey so do you hear from an agent or a manager like hey they're thinking about gremlins do you have anything you want to go in on that what do you think is yeah, that I mean, how I that starts
3: that i do see that that there's a lot of that happening right now and and it has been going on for quite some time i mean part of the reason why i want to co-found TKO Studios, the comic book company, was, you know, I had pitched original ideas, I had sold them, I had gone through development with them. And when those projects died, it was really heartbreaking because I was like, well, you know, it doesn't exist in any form except a bunch of pieces of paper in some studio vault. I'm I'm being kind, it's not in the vault, it's in the trash can. Um, But like, I wanted to actually have things exist. And if you can make it into a comic book or a book, like, you know that it exists in some form and you can have control over the way you tell that story. I mean, I remember with my comic book, um, the fearsome Dr. Fang um, me and my writing partner at the time we were, we were pitching it and, you know, everybody was like, you can't have the opening scene take place during the San Francisco earthquake. There's not the budget for it, but that's what we did in the comic. And so it was really a great way to keep control of something creatively and to, you know, allow, Yeah, for your imagination not be kind of hindered by by things like budget. Um, I do think it's tough right now. I mean, when you go out with an original idea, it's kind of like you're knocking on somebody's door and trying to sell them something that they did not know about five seconds before you know they open the door. And so Mm -hmm. that's why right now I prefer to, if I have original ideas, to run them through TKO Studios, and then to be meeting on. whether it's a pre-existing IP or a, a book or a um, you know something like Gremlins, like I, I know that the studio and network um, or the studio are they want that thing to happen, and then right. it's a, then you're fighting one battle. You know, usually when you walk in, you're kind of fighting with an original idea. You're fighting two battles. One is that you have to convince somebody that you that they like something or they want to do a show or a movie in that area, and then you have to prove that you have a great take on it and that it's undeniable and that you should be the person to do it. And sometimes I just like to fight one battle, which is they want to do something and I want to show them that I'm the, I, I'm, I'm the right person for it. Um, and I also, you know, I, I got kind of got burnt on selling stuff and not get, having it get made. And so for things I really care about, I, I try to run them through um, TKO studios if they're an original uh, idea. But that's not to say that I don't love adapting um, books. And, you know, Gremlins, it really was a labor of love. Every day that I I drove to work and every day when I was driving home, I was just – I thought how lucky I was that um, I was getting to do this as my job.
2: That's – yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, a gig's a gig, but the fact that it was one of your formative um, things, as you discussed, I mean, that probably – Really makes uh, makes you proud, and maybe even fueled your ability to get it because you had a like an inborn passion for it. You know that I talk to creators, and they're like, "Oh, there's this great gig," and I'm like, "Oh wow, I love that comic book." And they're like, "It's a comic book. I never heard of it." You know, and I'm like, "Oh, you're killing me, man. You're just killing me." You know what I mean? Like you're a big Gremlins fan, so I love seeing that. The worst is when somebody gets an IP, like, I mean, not to tell tales, this is kind of public knowledge, but like, take a property like The Witcher, you know? Um, uh, the reason Henry Cavill le- is leaving it is not because he doesn't like The Witcher. He actually loves The Witcher so much that he believes that the showrunners are not being as, uh, he- hewing as close to the source material as he prefers, right? So it, it's sort of a fascinating turn of events that were in this world. I mean, how do you, I, I don't mean to like say, hey, bite the hand that feeds you, but uh, how do you feel about that? Because when you started, that is when this, it wasn't even quite as bad as it is now, but it's so... It's like we thought, oh, well, there's be more volume and more uh, screens and more opportunities for creators to do stuff. And it seems like more and more and more and more, all we're being asked to do is adapt, reboot, readapt the same IP over and over. And and they're they're eating the seed corn, as they used to say in the old days, which is allow us as writers and creators to give you the next Star Wars as opposed to – of constantly adapting the existing IP. How do what is, how do you feel about that?
3: There's going to be a time where, um, a reckoning. Yeah. People kind of just get sick of it, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. And I also think it's, a lot of it comes down to risk aversion. Yeah, of course. And they know that something works or they know that something is, has value as an IP and then wanting it to, um, you know, continue on, you know, it's like an investment, um, and it's it's certainly been interesting to see what people have wanted to reboot because I think that they fall into a couple categories. One is um, you know things that I think f- feel like ten, five ten years ago. I mean, five years ago I would have killed to do, but there are certain companies that don't necessarily treat the creators that well, um, mm-hmm. and so. You know, one of the downsides is, um, you know, not. I, I don't. I, I, I want. I want to work at a place that really values my contribution, and I do a lot of due diligence, asking around. Um, and there are a lot of companies that you know. Listen, Warner Brothers Animation and Amblin, like I, they were incredible partners on Gremlins. Like I've always felt supported. Um, but I talked to other people who you know are are working on creating shows or movies from IP and it, it's there's, there's sometimes the feeling that um, they're kind of that, that, that their contribution is, is, is frankly just like not, not as valued because um, it's a huge, you know, they're stepping into a huge machine.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to, just exa- I'm not judging it's just that is the landscape now is that a real skill has to be not just are you a great writer are you a great storyteller but rather like are you a great brand manager yeah mm-hmm. manage- which is like management. a
1: whole you become more of a manager than- yeah
2: it, it's like you're a caretaker, you're a curator, you're a um, protector which means you have to deal out the whole nother set of skills which is more about business and interpersonal, uh, professionality, if that's a word, as opposed to pure artist, uh, resonating emotional stories about people and characters and situations that somehow, uh, resonate with, uh, the general public.
3: Yeah. I will also say that on the flip side of things, um, you know, the show, I just, uh, Uh, I just show ran with boots Riley. Um, you know, that was an original idea that came in through media res and Amazon. And it's, you know, it's about a, um, 13 foot tall black kid growing up in Oakland. And it's like, (laughs) it's completely original, um, shot everything practically tone is, you know, it's funny and it's weird and it's moving. Um, but you know, and, and th- then Amazon made a big investment in terms of um, the budget for the show, and we got a lot of support from the studio and the network. So I've also seen it happen the other way, you know. And I think for me, it's it's really tough because I try to look at try to look at the industry as a whole um, and see you know what the opportunities are, and a lot of these things. It's funny; they're they're kind of like coexisting. You know, there's there. I, I do think that there's There is room for original stories. Um, There is, you know, there's obviously like a huge appetite for creating stuff based on IP. And for me, a lot of staying sane over the last few years was trying to figure out a way where I could do, tell the types of stories I wanted to tell, be flexible, maybe work in a bunch of different ways, Um, but do it in a way that I kind of felt good about and I felt valued.
1: Right. Yeah. This has been part one of our conversation with Z Chun. Join us next week for part two, where we continue discussing Z's journey in entertainment. And we also cover the really cool film, which I had never seen before, called Chungking Express it's from 1994. Wang Karwai's Chungking Express from 1994. So, for Alex Collegian, I'm your other co host, Ryan Gibson. This has been How I Got Greenlit thanks for listening thank you for joining us thank you for this continued support please follow us on instagram and on twitter and if you have any questions please email the show at how i got greenlit at gmail.com we appreciate your support and we know you're listening thanks for joining us